Well, we're looking at、uh, a section of First Corinthians where we're talking about spiritual gifts. And we've been, of course, working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. And as you know, 1 Corinthians、uh, is a book where there were a lot of problems in the church, and Paul kind of addresses problem after problem after problem. And the section that we're in had to do with disunity and the fact that one of the things that should have been unifying them the most was causing the most division in their congregation, and that was. Their obsession with certain spiritual gifts and clamoring after the showier ones, the flashier ones, and evidently making some feel almost like second class citizens for not having certain gifts.、Um, seems as though in ancient Corinth、uh, there were pagan practices that will inf- were infiltrating even the worship service. Um, Corinth was known for its pagan idolatry and immoral lifestyles. It was a、uh, coastal town. It was、uh, famous for、uh, prostitution and sailors. It was a place where、um, different ships would come into port. Sometimes they'd be dragged across a short、um, uh, stretch of land over to the other side, to the eastern side, western side of Greece from the eastern side. Because it was safer and quicker than sailing around that southern section of Greece, that was often had、uh, many jagged and rocky places that was dangerous、uh, during those early first-century times, and so you'd have a bunch of sailors staying there in Corinth while、um, uh, their ship was being dragged across、uh, the few miles it is to the other side at that narrow point in Greece. But、um, they had a number of temples. Of course,、uh, one of the most famous was that of Aphrodite, who's the Greek goddess of love. But、uh, archaeologists have keep on finding different uh, uh, places in Corinth where、uh, there were different pagan I-、uh, idols and temples. One of them was、uh, not long ago was discovered a temple to uh, uh, Asclepius. Asclepius. Asclepius was a Greek, the Greek god of healing, and what's interesting is that inside the temple, archaeologists have found a bunch of clay sculptures or terracotta sculptures. These,、uh, and and apparently, those who were ill or sick,、uh, or had deformities, or lame, or blind, or something like that, they would get somebody to craft a clay、um, body part. If they, your ears needed the healing, they would have you sculpt an ear. If、uh, if they if you needed a new leg or legs, you'd get a couple of legs made, and you would come and bring these to the temple. And they discovered this temple with all these body parts in there, made out of you know tile or or some sort of clay.、It、looked like a mannequin factory or something like that. Hey, we have another elbow over here, and there's、uh, some eyes for the blind people. They're bringing all these body parts. Now, whether Paul was familiar with that boneyard or not,、um, we're not sure. But what we do know is that his picture of the church was the opposite of that temple. His picture was not of one of just a bunch of individual parts that really had no connection whatsoever. His picture was the church is one unified body, and every member of it is important, and every member of it was、uh, to be working together for a common purpose. And so he began chapter twelve, explaining the difference between genuine spiritual gifts and some non-Christian counterfeits. In verses two and three, we find that there were some pretty disturbing practices going on in their worship services. Four through eleven, all the way through verse thirteen,、um, but he speaks about these various gifts, and we've spent several weeks trying to explain and identify the gifts that he mentions. Of course, the purpose of this section is not for us. To actually, he was not writing this intending us as a training manual to teach us what the gifts were. He simply mentions the gifts as though people understood what they were. But his point is that though there are many gifts, they are all given by one Spirit. And unity, true unity in the church, is not uniformity. It's not that everybody looks alike and does the same thing. It's actually that everyone has different giftings, but all by the same Spirit, and they work together in a harmony that the world cannot understand nor explain. And so, this is a practical message for us because we have a tendency to be very individualistic. So, I want to start this morning with a question. My question is: 
why should you come to church? Why, do we, why are we here this morning? What is the purpose of, of coming to, getting all dressed up, coming to church? I met, I've met several people who've told me that uh, they've gotten quite comfortable uh, over COVID, uh, just staying at home on their couch and live streaming, and that they prefer that. And one or two have told me that they don't plan to go back to church, that they're just going to stay home and live stream. They enjoy that more. What do you say to a person like that? Why is church important? Why is it important to be here? It's part of a body. So what, what does that mean? It's not only to come and worship, but to serve one another. Um, so someone says, well, you know, I can serve others. I mean, I have a Bible study that I go to midweek. I just don't like going to church. I'd rather, you know, stay home. Uh, and uh, I can serve others in the body and the Bible study and so forth. Why assemble? Why gather together? Why do we do this? I mean, some might say, you know, listen, if you enjoy that, great. Some people like going to a baseball game, and uh, they, you know, uh, like the atmosphere and the feel of it. But I prefer to stay at home. I get a better perspective of what's actually happening. I, I see it more clearly from home. So I want to stay home. Yes? Okay, Hebrews 10, we're told not to neglect the gathering together with the saints. And the idea is actually assembling, getting together with them. That's something we shouldn't avoid. But why? Yes. Building up of the body of Christ. It, the difference is, and that's good, AJ, the, this idea that you, you have to interact with one another. The difference is, is that, you know, this is not a spectator sport. This is not like a baseball game where you sit and watch and observe. You are a player. You are a member of the body. And it's true that you can come to faith in Christ if you're stranded on a desert island and only have a Bible and you read it and you believe it and you come to faith in Christ and you're the only one on it and you can die and go to heaven but you will never be able to grow and mature as you would have if you were a member of the body of Christ. And the more you interact with other Christians, the more you will be able to use gifts that God has given you with his spirit that, uh, that are designed to mature and strengthen and help you to grow. And so... Uh, the more interaction we can have. This is one of the reasons why when somebody comes to Grace Community Church and says, well, you know, how can I find a, uh, a fellowship group that, that we often encourage them? Well, find a Bible study first. Find a Bible study uh, packed with people that you want to do life with, that you can see on a regular basis that will be getting together with you outside of Bible study and having coffee with you and calling you during the week. Hey, how's it going? And hey, you told me about this thing. I'm praying for you and all that. And then you see them on Sunday. And, and this is why we have these fellowship groups to have that smaller opportunity to interact with other believers. Otherwise, it's easy to come here and just kind of slip in and slip out. But this just enables us as a larger church to get to know one another better, which may cause more conflict, which may cause more uncomfortableness, which may be more work on your part, and yet it is for the benefit and glory of Christ, the benefit of the body and the glory of Christ, to serve one another, to build one another, um, to encourage one another. And so when we look at our our passage this morning in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 11 through 13, we're going to look at three details of the work of the Holy Spirit in the church that should give you a greater passion for unity in the church. So three details about the work of the Holy Spirit in the church that should give you a greater passion for unity in the church. I'm going to give these three to you, and then I'll repeat them again as we go through. And the first one is the Spirit is active in the body of Christ. Secondly, the Spirit is purposeful in the body of Christ. 
And the third one is the Spirit unifies the body of Christ. So we see, first of all, the Spirit is active in the body of Christ. Take a look at verse 11. It says, but one and the same Spirit works all these things. What things? What things are, is he talking about here? The things are the gifts that he's just mentioned and given a list of. And remember, we have four places in the Scripture where we find these gifts Two of them are in chapter 12 and two of them are in chapter 4. You have 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Romans chapter 12 that speaks about gifts. And then you have Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4 also speaks about gifts for the church. So, And, and we're not even sure those are complete lists, lists. Those are just various lists of differing gifts to show you that there are varieties of gifts. We have all kinds of various gifts, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, faith, gifts of healing, miracles, discerning spirits, tongues, interpretation of tongues, Proclamation gifts, serving gifts, teaching gifts, exhortation gifts, giving, leadership, mercy. There are apostolic gifts, prophetic gifts, evangelistic gifts, pastoral gifts, teaching gifts again, speaking or serving gifts uh, are two broad categories from 1 Peter 4.11. So we have a number of different types of gifts that we have in the church. And what is significant about them is that one and the same spirit who works all these things. So if you have a spiritual gift, um, you might use that to build up the body of Christ, but it is really the spirit who is at work. And when we talk about a spiritual gift, we're talking about something that is uh, that an unbeliever doesn't have. And so a spiritual gift cannot be given to an unbeliever uh, who does not have the spirit of God, but the spirit works through special giftings that sometimes we don't even recognize uh, in ways that we don't see. Um, if you have the gift of teaching, we're not talking about the natural ability to communicate, or uh, he's a really good communicator. Now, one would expect if you have the gift of teaching that you would be able to communicate in a fairly, you know, uh, comprehensive or, co you know, comprehensible, actually. I'm trying to communicate that. But um, <laughs> you would think, you would think that people could understand you clearly. Um, but uh, when we talk about these gifts, um, we also have been uh, highlighting the fact that some of these gifts were temporary and some of them uh, were longer lasting. And so some of them have already ceased. Uh, we believe, like for example, we talked quite a bit about the, the gifts of healing and miracles we believe that God still heals today. We believe that there are still miracles today, but we don't believe that God gives the gift of healing to an individual as he did to those early apostles and others who had the gift of healing, like Christ had the ability to heal, uh, which was far different than what people who claim to have the gift of healing have today or demonstrate today. So we see here that the Spirit is active in the body of Christ. There is in verse uh, 11 that word works. One of the same Spirit works all these things. And so we give the credit to the Spirit of God. We give the credit to the Lord for anything that's accomplished through us because we're simply using the gifts that he gave us for his glory. Second detail is not only is the Spirit active in the body of Christ, but it is purposeful in the body of Christ. It says at the end of verse 11 that not only the one and the same Spirit who works all these things, but he is distributing to each one individually just as he wills. So we've talked about how gifts can be distinguished from one another, how they are displayed in a variety of people in a variety of ways to various degrees and varying, with varying results. Um, and as we, we, we read these lists, once again, our, our purpose is not to say, oh, I want to find out what my gift is so I can use it. Uh, there's no place that instructs us to do that. I, I think uh, if you can just um, narrow it down to teaching and serving and however you can try to do those two things, Focus on that and see uh, what you enjoy doing, what the Spirit equips you to do, and what seems to be building up others in the body of Christ. And be involved in others, encouraging them, serving them, teaching when you have opportunity. 
And uh, it seems as though not every person has one single gift, but it seems like there's sort of a conglomeration of gifts, a special uh, no two people, no two members of the body of Christ are identical. There's no redundancy, which, which would give you the idea that there is a, it's sort of like a snowflake. Each one is individual, looks different. You might have them two similar ones, but no two are exactly alike. And so we have the body of Christ where the spirit gifts very intentionally, very purposefully. Um, he doesn't distribute them arbitrarily. They're not, it's not some whim or some random distribution. It's not even based on our own requests or wishes or desires. And we don't get them as rewards for certain spiritual achievements. But we're given them just as he wills, verse 11 which is in harmony with God's will. If you take a look down at verse 18 in 1 Corinthians 12, but now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. And so God places member in the body of Christ just as he pleases, and the Spirit gives them gifts just as he wills. So there's a focus here, really, and it's not on us running after certain gifts. I think that's what Paul's trying to get away from but rather we should be like a body that is working together. So as we fellowship, it should be done in unity. There shouldn't be anybody who feels like a second-class citizen or somebody who's uh, left out or uh, seen as not important. Um, we should be working in harmony. We should be walking in obedience, helping one another, submitting to one another, ministering to one another, serving God in such a way that the world would have no explanation for how it is that we all function together with such harmony. Notice the diversity mentioned in verse 13. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, try to think of the greatest racial division you have ever heard of in your life. And that would be uh, com comparable with the division between Jews and Greeks. We're talking about people who hated each other and as a part of their worship, celebrated it. Jews even taking off their shoes and knocking the dust off their feet, symbolically off their shoes, uh, and then putting their shoes back on when they left a Gentile territory, coming back into a Jew territory, as if to say, unclean, unworthy, terrible, despicable people that I've just been amongst. And then... So we also see that, you know, if you can think of different economic disparity, we, we hear a lot about the different, uh, the, the division between the haves and the have-nots. Can there be a greater one between those who are free and those who are slaves? And yet again in verse 12, verse 13, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. In other words, there should be such a unity that no racial division no economic division, no, there, there is no division you can think of that should separate us, but people should say, wow, I can't believe how much those people at that church actually love one another. Um, some of you were aware of the fact that at graduation, we had somebody who passed away. Um, DJ Matson passed away this past Sunday night. Um, and uh, he, he uh, apparently had a heart attack right after he received his diploma, was removed from the worship center. We weren't sure what was going on, um, but uh, uh, he was taken to a hospital. He, the paramedics were here. There were doctors on site, um, and uh, I was talking with Judy, his wife, this week, and she said to me, she, I don't think she would mind me sharing this. This, this is good. This is, this is a, a sweet thing for the body of Christ. She said that um, in times past, they don't have any family out here. She's kind of felt alone, you know, but she's been overwhelmed with how many people reach, have reached out to her and how many people actually knew both of them and her DJ and Judy and, and, and how many people care for her. And she's overwhelmed with just the love that the body of Christ is expressing. And uh, even the, the pastors here, we've been, people have been emailing us, how can we help? What can we do? Um, it, it really is a picture of one member of the body is hurting. Now for DJ, he's in glory, from graduation to glory. It's a beautiful story, really. Um, 
you know, shakes John MacArthur's hand, uh, gets a tassel turned by Abner Chow, shakes his hand, turns over, comes down three steps, goes straight to heaven. Um, but uh, from her perspective, there's a, there's a lot that she's working through, and, and the body is coming around her, and it's sweet to see that. I just, I just wanted to mention that because I think sometimes we all feel like, kind of give ourselves a little bit of a pity party. Like, I'm alone. I don't, I don't have anybody around us. But you know what? I would encourage you, if, whenever you feel that way, look around you. See who might be hurting. Serve Christ who died for you. This is what he's trying to get at. Instead of seeing what you have or what you don't have or what others have and how you feel left out or whatever, use the gifts God has given you to build up the body. This is the focus of this passage, that we might build one another up. So we've seen that the spirit is active in the body of Christ. We see that the spiritual is the spirit is purposeful in the body of Christ. But there's a third detail here, and that is the spirit unifies the body of Christ. Verses 11 and 12, sorry, verses 12 and 13. The spirit unifies the body of Christ. Take a look at these verses with me. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now, there are a lot of things that are in this passage and that are really unique, and I want to get into this. I've kind of pushed through verse 11 because um, this is a very controversial and can be a very uh, passage that has, uh, has confused a lot of people in the past. But I want to first, first of all ask the question, why does Paul say at the end of verse 12, so also in Christ? You might expect him to say, for even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, they are one body, so also is the church. But he doesn't say so also is the church. He says so also is Christ. Why? Because Christ is the head of the church. But even more than that, he's using the name Christ to describe the church because the association between the body of Christ and Christ is so close that he uses the name Christ here to describe the church. This is a metonym. That is when you use something, another word that is so intimately connected with something else that it could stand for it. In other words, uh, an example is you might say the pen is mightier than the sword. What do we mean by that? Well, do we mean a little pen is better than a sword? Do we mean that writing and words, the written word, can be more powerful than military action? Um, now, whether that's true or not, I'm just trying to give you examples of metonyms here, and pen can describe the written word. But here, Christ is used to describe the church so also is Christ. You know, the human body, if you think about it, um, my dad for 35 years taught physiology at Cal State Long Beach. And my sister studied uh, nutrition and science. And this, it wasn't really my forte. It wasn't something I was really excited about. I mean, when I came home at dinner and said, hey, you know, and we're sitting at the table, I said, man, why is the meat so red? My dad would tell us, and it was not an appetizing description of, of really, I mean, the very chemical breakdown and everything. Um, I was just asking, could we cook it a little bit more? But, the, uh, but my sister, man, she told me that when she got a new science textbook, sometimes she shook with excitement before she cracked it open. Yeah. But, but here's the great thing. <laughs> Here's the great thing, and that is part of her excitement was because she learns more about what God has done and the way he has built the body. And those believers who are involved in the sciences will tell you that again and again and again. Design is all over the place. But when we see that human body, um, it, it's an organism. Everything's dependent on one another. And if you, if you, if you cut one member of the body off, uh, 
it, it cannot be sustained. It doesn't live. And the rest of the body suffers. And so Paul uses that illustration of an organism. His, his, his emphasis is on that it is living, that it is active, that it should be working together by one spirit. It's different than a, a skeleton. A skeleton is organized, uh, it can be organized, but it is not uh, living. This is a body which is living. And so we have um, the church which is described here as Christ. We find the same truth in John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, he shall bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So you cut off a branch, it is lifeless. It doesn't grow, but the branch that is connected to Christ can be fruitful. This is why Jesus said in John 14, 19, a little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. There is a great connection, even with eternal life, because Christ lives, we live. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. We're talking about the true church. We're talking about people here who have genuinely repented of their sins and turned and trusted in Christ as their Lord and master. And you say, well, isn't this speaking about the universal church? Yes, but, but the idea that you could be a part of the universal church and not be a part of a local assembly, which is a representation of the body of Christ, is foreign to Scripture. This idea that you could just float around from church to church or not go to church at all is foreign. If you would have told the Apostle Paul in the first century that you were a Christian, and he said, what fellowship are you a part of? And you said, yeah, I'm not really plugged in. He would say, how is it that you're a Christian then? Because the, a Christian was so associated with Christ and the body that the idea that you could be unassociated with the church was foreign to those who wrote the New Testament. And so verse 13 says, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Now there is, one of the reasons why this passage is so confused is because of one small word it is a preposition, yes, a preposition, and uh, it's the word by. By one spirit, we were all baptized. So the question is, is that talking about the agent, the location, or the means? By one spirit. In other words, um, if I were to say the plant by the hose was watered, okay? It's unclear whether I'm speaking about the agent, the location, or the means. If uh, it was a cartoon and the water had, the hose had life and it could actually get up and turn the tap on and then water it, then the hose itself could actually be the agent that waters, that carries out the watering. If it's the location, then I could say the plant by the hose was watered. I'm speaking about that plant that's over there by the hose it could have been watered by a watering can. We have no idea. I'm just talking about the location. Or if I said um, the plant was the plant by the hose was watered, I, I could mean that uh, water actually came through the hose, and that was the means by which it was watered. So just by using the words the plant by the hose was watered, it's unclear whether I'm talking about the hose as the agent, the location, or the means. Now, in English, we typically take those prepositional phrases and put them in close proximity to what we're trying to describe. In other words, if we were talking about the means, we might say, by the hose, the plant was watered. Or if I'm talking about location, I would say the plant by the hose was watered. But in Greek... Word order is not as important, and so we don't have that differentiation, and, and it's, it's unclear, just as it is in English, what, what we're really talking about with that preposition. The reason why this is confusing sometimes is because when people talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they're talking about something that they think is something that the Holy Spirit is the agent doing the baptism. And I don't believe that's what this passage is saying. I don't believe it's saying that he is the one who is actually doing the baptism. 
any more than I think that water actually performs baptism in water baptism. It is another agent who, who baptizes. Paul said, I, 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 Apollos baptized and others baptized. I'm glad I didn't baptize anyone except for that. And those were the agents who did the baptism in water. But here we go. We're talking about a dry baptism, a spirit baptism, not a water baptism. And the question is, who was the, was the spirit really the one doing it, or was it uh, somehow uh, locative or somehow the location that, it was, uh, that gives you the idea of the, the involvement there or wh- where it was um, baptized, or is it the means And I'm really just trying to, what I want to point out here is that this phrase does not mean that the Holy Spirit is the one doing the baptism. Even though grammatically it can be translated that way, I do not believe that this is saying the Holy Spirit is the one doing it. And let me give you five reasons. And and you'll see as I give you these reasons why this is important. So first reason why this phrase doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is the one doing the baptism is that spirit baptism is by Christ. When we speak about spirit baptism, it's important to recognize that Christ is the the agent. Christ is the one who baptizes. Just like when you're baptized um, with water, you can be baptized by an individual. Acts chapter chapter 1, verse 5, it says, For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Um, And so we, we often refer to spirit baptism as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I, I think if, if, if uh, someone says, uh, are you talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? You don't need to, to say, wait, wait, wait a minute, not of the Holy Spirit. But you could if you had time to talk with them about that because nowhere in Scripture is that phrase ever used. We're, nowhere in Scripture do we talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Not even in this passage, the word here, Translated by can be translated as by or in or with. But this is not the possessive case. This is not showing of the Holy Spirit. Um, as, it's not baptism of the Holy Spirit. We don't find that passage in Scripture. Um, so, um, and I think that the better translation, which some translators do, is, is this is the baptism in the Spirit or with the Spirit. Um, We know that Jesus is involved in spirit baptism because Jesus, who was identified as he who is coming after me and is mightier than I by John the Baptist, in Matthew 3.11, it says, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We have that language that Christ is the one baptizing with the Spirit in Matthew 3.11, in Mark 1.8, in Luke 3.16, and in John 1.33. So in all four Gospels, we have that language that Jesus is going to baptize with the Spirit. Um, But I think that uh, moving on, I think that What is more important, because I understand that we are talking about the Trinity here, and we're talking about three distinct persons with also different roles at various times, and yet one God. And so we believe that. That's what the Bible teaches, uh, the Trinity. And I'm I'm not trying to separate it so much, but I want to explain why this is important. That's our second reason why we see that the Spirit is not the one doing the baptism here. It's because... The reason people emphasize that this is the Spirit doing the baptism is they want to see this as a second act of grace or a distinct work that happens to some believers but not all believers. So in other words, you're sitting at the table, you know, and, uh, and, and, and a, a single girl is there and she says, uh, hey, I met a new guy. And you say, oh, yeah, tell me about him. Well, he's a Christian and he's Spirit-baptized. <gasps> What? A Christian and spirit baptized? Why, what on earth could you mean by that? She means that there is something that some Christians have that other Christians don't. And that is a common teaching today in many churches, churches that uh, can be very confusing about spiritual gifts. 
And I'm afraid that it is dividing Christians rather than uniting them. And I don't think the Bible teaches that this is a second act of grace. Um, So let's talk about this word, first of all, the word baptize. What does it mean? What does the word baptize mean? To immerse, yeah. It is a, it is a, that's what the word means. I wish that the translators of the first English Bibles would have used the word immerse. That's what it means. Um, it, 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 uh, it, instead of, they, they kind of wimped out, I think, because they took a transliteration of a Greek word. The Greek word is baptizo. And so they took that word and instead of say, translating it as its meaning, like they do with just about every other Greek word, and say immerse, that you are immersed into the body of Christ, or he immersed him in water, because I think infant baptism was so prevalent in the English-speaking world, they decided not to use the word immerse, because that wasn't the way most people were baptized, or many people were baptized, and so instead, they made a Greek, they just left it ambiguous. They took the Greek word baptizo and say, baptize, and they let every church determine what that should mean. I made the comment once while I was teaching that, uh, that the word baptizo means immerse. And somebody came up to me afterwards and says, it doesn't always mean that. And I said, well, that's fine. I'm happy to correct myself. Just bring me a lexicon, any Greek lexicon from any publisher, and just show me the other definitions. And he didn't come back to me. So I went and looked it up, and I did find that it can mean other things. It can mean to drown, <laughs> to put under to immerse, to dip completely. I mean, it's, it's just unbelievable. You, you get these, these, I mean, okay, which one do you want to use? Different translations, but you got to, you, you, we have lexicons for a reason. How is this word, word used outside of Scripture? How is it used by the Greeks? How is it used in Scripture? And that's how we should define it. But when we're talking about to immerse, we're talking about being immersed into the body of Christ. Romans 6.3, or do you not know that as many of us were, that as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, just, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by glory, by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For we have been united together in the likeness of his death. Certainly we shall be in the likeness of of his resurrection. Romans 6, by the way, is not speaking about water baptism. It's speaking about baptizing, identifying, being immersed into Christ. We use the word immersed sometimes that way too, not speaking of water. You say, oh man, he didn't answer me. He is so immersed in his work. He is so just involved, associated, identified with his work. Um, And unless he's a you know, a deep sea diver. We're not talking about water. We're talking about just this uh, being placed under, uh, completely engulfed by his work. And so, um, and, and, and we learned from, from Romans 6 that not only are we identified with his death, but we're also identified with his resurrection. We shall be like him in the likeness of his resurrection. And so there is a, there is a, a close association with Christ. <clears throat> One Pentecostal named Lawrence Christensen wrote a book in which he said, quote, beyond conversion, beyond the assurance of salvation, beyond having the Holy Spirit, there is a baptism with the Holy Spirit. And so um, the, the problem is that nowhere in Scripture are we told to seek after such a baptism. It's, it's just read into passages like this. Um, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 18, remember, it's, if you look at that again, it says, God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. Verse 11 teaches us that he's, the Holy Spirit has gifted, gift, distributed those gifts as he wills. So... In response to this idea that God placed members in the body, it's God who determines who's in the body of Christ, right? And he places them. And the Spirit determines what gifts they receive. Robert Thomas said, quote, 
he used to teach here at the seminary, uh, Robert Thomas, quote, uh, a Christian does not select his own spiritual gifts, which in turn determine his place in Christ's body. God's pleasure alone determines his gifts. No provision exists for a Christian with inferior gifts to be discontent. Rather, it is his place to take the gifts he has, and he says, quote, unquote, inferior gifts, take the gifts that he has and use them to the maximum benefit for the rest of the body, which leads us to our next point. Uh, we've seen that, um, uh, you know, people, um, that, that they often use this phrase, as uh, an excuse for saying it's a second act or a second work. We've seen that spirit baptism is by Christ, but also um, the focus is really on unity. The focus is on unity. It's not possible to be a Christian and not be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Um, Baptism with one spirit makes the church one body. Galatians 3.26, it says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So, again, the emphasis here on unity is unmistakable. So it's ironic that some would take this very passage and say, well, some of us have the baptism of the Spirit and some of us don't. Just read again with me verses 12 and 13 of 1 Corinthians Chapter 12, for even as the body is one, it has many members, and all members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. And so instead, people have said, well, no, no, there are the zapped and the non-zapped. There are those who have, you know, the special baptism of the spirit um, and some who don't. Another uh, charismatic evangelist named Norval Hayes, he describes when he got his zap. He says this, quote, God came on me so strong and started blessing me so much, I just fell on my knees and started crying and weeping and getting blessed. I found out God loves me and he was petting me because I obeyed the Holy Spirit. Yikes. Um, So... Uh, there's this idea that some people just don't know that. Interestingly enough, Charles, uh, John Wesley, who the Wesleyan tradition is, is part of the reason why this is so prevalent in the church, and he believed that there was a second act of grace where you were sort of baptized by the Spirit or somehow made more holy. And, but he also died, if you read his biographies, he died um, believing that he never attained it. So his theology was bad, but his practice was more biblical. Um, um, So another reason why I believe we're talking here about um, baptism, not of the Spirit, not as the Spirit doing the one baptizing, but because Spirit baptism occurs only once in the life of a believer. Ephesians 4.4, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all, and through all, and in you all. And 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says it most clearly more than anywhere else. Look at it. It says, by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. It seems strange to me that if Paul was trying to teach unity, and there were two different times where the spirit baptized, that he would say to the Corinthians, we all were, past tense, aorist tense there, um, Uh, we were all baptized. Because if it happens at various times for various people, then he could be right in the church and saying, uh, you you either were baptized or you're going to be baptized by the Spirit. And then the final observation here or or reason why I think that we we need to make sure that we understand that this is uh, not speaking about a baptism of the Spirit is because not only spirit baptism is by Christ, it's not a second work, it's all about unity, it only happens once, but a fifth reason is this is different from indwelling and filling. Um, The indwelling of the spirit is something just different and distinct from the baptism in the spirit or with the spirit. 
Romans 8, 9 talks about the indwelling of the Spirit. It says, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And so there we're talking about the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you, which is distinct from the baptism, though they happen at the same time. The baptism in the Spirit is when you are immersed through the Spirit into the body of Christ. You become a member of the body of Christ. The indwelling spirit is a spirit that dwells in you and works in you. The being filled with the spirit is also something different altogether. Being filled with the spirit is, the, is in Ephesians 5.18, it says, be not drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but rather be filled with the spirit. We are instructed to be spirit filled, which means to do what the spirit would have you to do to be obedient to the Spirit, to be under the Spirit's control. It's, it's actually there uh, compared with being drunk, where you're under the control of something else that doesn't allow you to do what you would want to do, and, but being filled with the Spirit is doing what the Spirit of God would have you do as opposed to doing what you think uh, you might naturally want to do. So I've, I've, I've kind of thrown a lot in there. My main goal was hoping to, to help you see that the unity of the body of Christ and to serve and that unity is not found in uniformity, but in actually using your gifts by the same spirit, which all differ. Are there any questions? We've got still about seven or eight minutes here. Any questions about this? Yes? Uh-huh. Sure. So the question has to do with Acts chapter 1 and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which manifests itself in, 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 in quite a different way um, than, than we see elsewhere in Scripture. Um, so let's talk about um, what happened on the day of Pentecost. And, and, and so on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, we have people from 15 different nations. They heard the believers speaking in their own languages, right? And um, you have to remember that also the disciples who believed had not yet received the Spirit yet. So though we say that Spirit baptism happens to all believers at the point of regeneration, those disciples had not yet been received the Spirit because it came on the day of Pentecost. We also have Acts chapter 10, another event that was similar to the Acts chapter 2 event, and that's where we have um, the Spirit of God manifesting itself in tongues again. But first of all, those who came to faith were Gentiles, and they came to faith and believed um, and, and they believed when they were preached the gospel, and so it could have happened at regeneration there. But what we see with the manifestation of tongues is that it was a sign to the Jews to remind them, to say, hey, God really is bringing in the Gentiles, the same manifestation of the Spirit that we saw when we came to uh, when we received the Spirit. They have the same Spirit we do. So again, the whole point is what? unity. And then we also have Acts chapter 19. We have another similar incident in Ephesus where Paul found some believers who had only heard of John's baptism and never even heard of the Holy Spirit. Um, and once again, the point is unity and that the Spirit helps bring that about. And so every other occasion, uh, we, it's clear that at the moment of conversion to Christ and there was no need for verifying signs or wonders accompanying that. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yes? In, in, uh, prior to the Spirit coming to Pentecost, when John's baptized with water, he basically said everything is 
So the question is, there's a difference between water baptism and spirit baptism? Yeah, and sure, and, 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 and that's a good point, and that is when we say that the Spirit did not come until the day of Pentecost, we're not saying that the Spirit did not exist, nor are we saying that the Spirit didn't have different roles. The Spirit was involved in creation as, long, as well as the Father and the Son. The Spirit did indwell or come upon, and people were anointed with the Spirit. You know, uh, we, th- we think of uh, King Saul was given God's Spirit and it was taken away because of his disobedience. So when David sinned with Bathsheba and he cries out in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me, we sing that, but we're not singing that in the same way as he sang that. We sing that, the Spirit won't be taken from us. He sang that because the Spirit had been given to him to lead God's people as king, and the Spirit had been taken away from his predecessor, and he realized he had sinned against the Lord, so he cries out in repentance and says, saying, don't let that same thing happen to me, which happened to Saul. But when the Spirit, when we come into the body of Christ, we don't have to worry about the Spirit being taken away from us, though we should be just as contrite and repentant as David when we sin. A couple minutes left. Any other questions? Yes. Yeah, I think we're talking there about a natural birth and a uh, supernatural birth because, you know, um, Nicodemus was saying, how can I climb into my mother's womb again, right? So, all right. Well, let me pray. Thank you, Father, for this time together, and thank you, Lord, for helping us through this passage, which, which has caused much confusion and division over the years. Help us as we discuss this with others and and try to explain it uh, to others and study it ourselves, help us to always do it in love with concern for your body, that we might be able to build up your body in, in, in a way that brings about more unity and more glory for your name. So we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.